So if you can quiet your own cells, I call it stealth mode, the chemo literally doesn't find them. And so you don't get the side effects in the parts of your body that are normally more rapidly metabolizing. So the parts of our body that get hit with chemotherapy are the ones that are still actively in a growth phase. So, I mean, the one that everyone knows the most is hair. It's Moving Through Menopause and I'm here today with Martha Tettenborn and I'm really excited to chat with her. You know, Martha has written a really fabulous book and so we're going to talk all about the book. But first of all, let's meet Martha. Martha is a registered dietitian and she's in Ontario, Canada by the Great Lakes, which just sounds so fabulous, Martha. How are you? <laughs> I'm wonderful. Thank you. How are you? <laughs> I'm okay. Not quite so exciting in Lincolnshire, I have to say, but uh, we you know we make the best of it. And uh, it, sounds, it sounds exotic to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were just telling me about your heritage, your dad coming from Cumbria, did you say? The Lakes District is what yeah. I understand. Yeah. 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 He was uh, uh, Graham, a uh, good, say, Lowland Scots name. And then I married a German, got a name that nobody can spell, but oh well. <laughs> so we're talking today um, about a personal journey that you made, but also something that was tied up with your professional interest in nutrition. And, uh, and so we are talking about ovarian cancer, and we know that half of ovarian cancer cases are found in women over 63. And although menopause doesn't cause ovarian cancer, your chances of developing it do get more as you get older. I mean, that's kind of true for lots of things. But uh, ovarian cancer is definitely something that we want to prick our ears up uh, and learn about because it is one of those conditions that can be sitting there silent and we, we know nothing about it. So tell me, first of all, a little bit about your journey as a, a registered dietitian and your interest in ketogenesis and you know where that all started. Sure, sure. So um, yeah, so I'm a, I'm Canadian. Um, I am a registered dietitian and I graduated back in the mid 80s. Um, so you can do the math, it was a long time ago. Um, it was in the middle of the um, information, the cutting edge information on low fat diets that was coming out of the US at that time, the McGovern Commission and the Dietary Guidelines for Americans that ended up being adopted by basically every Western civilization out there. Um, and so I have practiced in Ontario for uh, over 35 years, I think it is. It's hard to say now, <laughs> um, but I've spent the last 20 years in gerontology, um, working in long-term care with frail seniors. Um, I love I love my work with seniors. I love working with people, um, helping them to stay awesomely well. Mm -hmm. But I also decided that I wanted to get into helping people to age well and to stay healthy as they get older because I saw a lot of chronic disease. And then I saw some people who were just incredible, you know, just hitting their 90s and beyond and still so well mm. so I um, I started looking and you know as a personal thing I planned to um, age awesomely that was my I've always said I planned to live to 95 and die with my boots on um, mm -hmm. probably hiking boots possibly motorcycle boots who knows but uh, um, so I was doing invest probably over the last 10 years or so I've moved further and further away from um, the standard diet and more into a low carbohydrate um, healthy fats more ancestrally focused sort of diet and um, a less processed sort of diet so I've done a lot of research and I've done some extra certification to become a, um, a primal health coach in low carb nutrition um, and then I started a private practice um, doing that as well about four years ago, five years ago, five years ago now. And uh, that was not well accepted in my small Ontario community. Like I didn't get any support from the local doctors or anything. People are fine, but you know, the doctors wouldn't refer to me or anything. So it was a bit of a hard slog. 
Um, but then in 2018, in the summer of 2018, is when I discovered that I had a huge ovarian cyst that turned out to be ovarian cancer. And um, I put the the practice pretty much on the back burner at that point to um, make room in my life for cancer. Um, and I haven't really restarted the practice in its previous iteration. Um, I've sort of pivoted into the whole cancer metabolism and cancer nutrition field, which is why we're here, what we'll talk about. <laughs> that is entirely why we're here. And, uh, you know, this story for you began, and I, I kind of liked the story, that it began when you were trying to do some planking. And obviously, planking as a Pilates teacher and yoga teacher, that's, you know, something that I do on a regular basis. So, um, you know, and it, and it is, like we said, something that women can be uh, having the bodies without even knowing it. A, a space-occupying lesion can get really quite big before we actually begin to notice it. And it was when you were uh, lying on your front, uh, I think you must have been recovering from doing the plank when you were lying flat on your front and you felt um, that you had something taking up space inside your body. Is that is that how it began? Well, it began because I got a text message from my girlfriend, one of my best yeah. friends. She lives about five hours away. And she had been doing some serious exercise because she had a really awesome fitness goal, which was to become a monkey at the racetrack. And a monkey is a person in full body armor who holds on to a sidecar of a racing motorcycle and provides the counterweight for the racing bike. Yeah. So they are just on a platform with like a, a bar to hold on to and they have to counterweight all of the twists and curves on the, the track. It's an incredibly physically demanding thing. And she was in her late fifties at this point, same as me. Um, and this is what she wanted to do. She has raced motorcycles, so it wasn't as far out there as it sounds, but she was doing all kinds of exercise and she was aiming for a two minute plank. And I had been inspired by that when I saw her in the spring. So she sent me a message in about mid-July of 2018 and said, so what are you up to on your plank? And I said, well, this is a text message. So it's like, ooh, um, haven't done one of those in a while. So I literally just got off the sofa and laid on the living room floor. I had no, you, I wasn't recovering from the plank. I hadn't oh, even gone to the plank yet. I had just laid down on the carpet. And the moment I laid on the carpet, there was something hard in my lower abdomen. It was like I was laying on an egg or something. It was so bizarre. It had never been there before. And immediately I just knew there was something wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of, you know, felt around a bit. Um, and then I sat up and I called my doctor and said, uh, there's something there. I need to come in and see you. So about five days later, I got a um, an ultrasound. And the ultrasound showed that I had a very large ovarian cyst. It was just a very simple fluid-filled sac that had grown on the ovary. Um, and it was about 15 centimeters across already. So that's about six inches. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was huge. Um but it was fluid filled. It was very simple. I was referred to a gynecologist for, um, cause it was going to have to come out. It was too big to ignore. Um, and, but it was summer, you know, she was on a month's holidays and I saw her replacement and, you know, summer's pretty short and precious in Canada. So, <laughs> um, anyways, it took about two months before I finally got it removed and it had continued to grow during that time until that was the, the cyst was above the level of my, my, my belly button. So I was literally having to sit down and pull my pants up over my waist, you know, up over the bump, almost like you're like mid, mid pregnancy. Um, and I couldn't move like I could, I had to stop running. I had just started running again that summer, which is, which I love. And I had to stop that. I had to stop anything that involved, you know, bumping and grinding. Um, or yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, that too. Um, because if it ruptured, it would have been awful, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, small ovarian cyst rupturing can cause acute excruciating pain. Mm -hmm. But this this thing was like enormous, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I had it removed um, about two months after I first found it. And it contained a liter and a half of fluid at that point. 
So, yeah, it was a, you know, if you think about size of a carton of milk mm -hmm. <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, it was, it was a big. Um, so, but I had it done laparoscopically because there was no indication it was cancer. I'd had a, um, there is a, a blood test for a marker for ovarian cancer. And I had that test um, done and it was only marginally elevated, like just barely above the normal range. So mm -hmm. nobody thought it was cancer. My, none of the doctors did. So I decided to have a laparoscopic surgery um, with the little incisions and they ruptured this thing inside me and sucked the fluid out and then pulled out this deflated cyst and took out both ovaries and both fallopian tubes. And then six days later, when I was sitting at home, I got another phone call from the surgeon and her, her office. And they said, the surgeon wants to see you come tomorrow morning, bring your husband. And I mean, I work in healthcare. I know what that means. It's just that means, yeah. not good. <laughs> um, so that's when I found out it was cancer and I had to start down that path of um, being referred to an oncologist. And um, so, yeah, it was, uh, it was a very, um, I, I compare it to an elephant that, you know, kind of, it's the elephant in the room. It, it sort of drops into your living room and takes up all the available space and just pushes everything else to the edges when when you get a cancer diagnosis it's pretty uh pretty all-consuming for sure yeah i i um, i have my own kind of experience of that but with by proxy with my my young son if you remember yeah um, when he was just one he was diagnosed with a tumor attached to his sacrum similarly that was occupying space in his body but uh, it wasn't filled with fluid as it goes anyway he's healthy now but we, you know we did have the chemotherapy journey that's uh, i know you then uh, ultimately you had to embark upon that uh, yeah yeah and you know it's you know what can we do the thing is you know we know we've got to go through this uh this tr conventional treatments approach we know it's uh it's really exhausting, draining. Uh, you know, we're going to be ill. We know what we know. This is coming. Uh, it's and so, Chemo is poison. Oh well, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> there you are. It's poison, and so it's. It was for me. You know, I was just observing this and uh, nursing my son, and it was everything I could do to help. What you know, what could I do to help? And the only thing I could think of was with food, nourishment, you know, how can we manage that? But you you took it to a whole nother level uh, with your research, I have to say. And um, and so this this is the, the, the piece that is absolutely fascinating, that um, it was really around optimizing the outcome of this treatment for yourself uh, and minimizing the side effects and, and all the consequences of the chemotherapy poison that you're having to have put inside your body and so you know um this is this is what you know so much more about than i do and i'd love if you would tell me uh, uh, whatever you can tell me yeah well i as a dietitian you know trained in the 80s and trained in the standard um method mm -hmm. um and the way dietitians are still being trained i might say um is that really we didn't think there was anything that we could do nutritionally for cancer as uh, an, an entity other than to kind of prevent people from um, losing weight or you know dealing with the consequences of the treatment which was you know horrible nausea emesis um, weight loss in advanced cancer cachexia that kind of thing so it was just about trying to support them through the treatment with enough calories that they didn't lose weight mm -hmm. that was really all we knew and and so we used what we called a high energy high protein diet and that involved um making the diet as nutrient dense as you could, or as calorie dense, really, we weren't even concerned about nutrients, no, no. but as calorie dense as you could in the smallest volume so that people could get calories. So, you know, the, the classic example is you can make a piece of toast, which is about 80 calories, 
then you can butter the toast. Then you put peanut butter on the toast. Then you put jam on top of the peanut butter. And by the time you're done, it's still only one piece of toast, but you're up to about 300 calories. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of density is what, you know, we were using and we were using sugar and honey and syrups and, and fats and creams and things like that to try and get those extra calories in. That was all we knew. But I also know that having already been a bit of a renegade by heading off into this low carb realm, that there was a lot more to nutrition than what I had learned. And so I went diving into the, um, information around cancer and what could I do? Is there anything I can do? And holy crap, I found all kinds of stuff I could do. Like there, there's this whole approach to cancer or there's, there's this whole field of knowledge about the metabolism of cancer that has really only been rediscovered in the last 20 years or so. It was being researched in the 1920s and the 1930s. Oh. Um, and a lot of work was done back then with cancer, but a lot of the really groundbreaking work was done in Germany. And a lot of it had to do with, among other things, the fact that Adolf Hitler was terrified of cancer. His mother died of cancer. Oh. And, and so he was very supportive as, as he rose through the power structure in Germany, he was very supportive of cancer research. And so there was a, you know, among there's a lot of factors. It's a fascinating story. It has recently just been published in a book called Ravenous by Sam Apple. Tell oh. the story of Otto Warburg and the um, the research that was done in Germany to um, look at metabolism and particularly metabolism of cancer and how it was different. Um, in fact, Otto Warburg won a Nobel Prize um, for his work in metabolism. Oh, um, not specifically cancer necessarily, but, but in metabolism and describing it. So that whole field of nutrition around cancer and metabolism around cancer was lost after the war. Among other things, um, Watson and Crick in, um, described the um, DNA, the, the double helix of G DNA. They were able to talk about, you know, what genetic material was. And it became obvious very quickly that cancer has damaged genetic material. So the entire um, machinery of the cancer industry switched over to this genetic approach to cancer and basically just left metabolism on the dustbin of history. Okay. But in the last 20 years, that area has been kind of rediscovered and there's some, some researchers doing some really amazing work in mm -hmm. cancer metabolism descriptions and how cancer's metabolism is broken and different. It's not broken. It works for cancer. It's not the way we, you know, the, our healthy cells do it. But because it's different, it's possibly something that can be impacted. And because it's metabolism, we're talking about fuel and how you fuel your body. And when you're talking about fuel, you're talking about food. So we're back to nutrition, which is kind of where I nerd out. So um, I got going on all this stuff and it's like, holy cow, there are things that I can do that are already in the area of nutrition that I am passionate about, which is the low carb, healthy fats, ancestral eating sort of stuff um, that will actually impact on cancer and help me and help to, you know, make it more difficult for cancer to grow. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that was, um, that was really fascinating to, to think that, you know, we know the, these cells multiply at an exponential rate. And so you can, uh, you can influence those, that rate of mm -hmm. uh, reproduction. And so it was partly about the cancer cells and then it was also about the healthy cells you were telling me too yes so i was um i was strongly encouraged to take chemotherapy i didn't have a tumor in my body which is different from a lot of people's situation right where they take chemo to shrink a tumor before they have surgery my tumor was out but because they had ruptured the cyst there was the chance that these this was called a spill. And so there was a chance that the cancer cells could be loose in my abdominal cavity. 
And um, so it was very strongly encouraged that I have a second surgery to, to the full hysterectomy. And, and I had to have a, um, a port placed that, I, that would deliver one chemo drug down in, right into my abdomen. So they actually drained one of the drugs directly into my abdominal cavity, because that's where this kind of cancer likes to hang out and stick and grow new tumors around your pelvic and abdominal space. Um, so I had the second surgery and I was going to be starting into chemo. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, I have been so healthy. I've had like zero surgeries my entire life. I take zero medications, like nothing. I'm so drug naive. I was really, I was terrified of taking the chemo. I really was. Um, so I started looking into some of these um, cancer metabolism researchers. And among other people, I found the work of Dr. Walter Longo, um, who's a re longevity researcher in California, but he had done a lot of work using fasting and looking at its impact on cancer growth and on um, chemotherapy in particular. Wow. And what he determined and what I kind of built out of what I read of, of his research um, and, and other people, but he was kind of the one in terms of chemo was that um, your healthy cells are capable of burning a variety of fuels. We're metabolically flexible that we can burn sugar or carbohydrates. We can burn um, fatty acids. We can burn ketone bodies, um, which is our body's own alternative to glucose because it's a water soluble um, fuel substrate. And we burn them in the mitochondria, which are the little powerhouses that are inside all of our cells. But cancers mitochondria most of the time is damaged and they cancer seems to choose or has become very adept at metabolizing sugar in a different process a much more ancient process that takes place in the fluid of the cell wow. in the cytoplasm so it's it's actually more like a fermentation process and it will take glucose and it will break it down into lactic acid and um, so it, it's it's a, also a kind of a dirty fuel sort of process as opposed to mitochondrial respiration where we actually like the, the byproducts are oxygen and or sorry, carbon dioxide and water. Mm. So very clean burning fuel mm. um, and, and a much more efficient process. Fermentation is much less efficient in terms of how much fuel it produces or how much energy it produces, but it's, it's very fast. It's instant. Mm right? Um, we all are capable of doing it. If we have an adrenaline rush, that fight or flight, that fuel that gets you like gets your muscles moving instantly to, you know, evade the, the tiger or whatever, um, or the speeding train or, you know, whatever it is you're jumping out of the way of that, that energy is that cytoplasmic fermentation, right? And when you burn energy in the absence of um, oxygen, such as when you're sprinting, and you get that lactic acid burn in your mm -hmm. muscles, that's exactly what that is as well. Okay. So by changing our fuel, by fasting in particular, you can actually um, make your healthy cells kind of quiet down. They changes their metabolism into kind of a maintenance cleanup sort of mode where they're not actively, um, they're, they're not metabolizing as fast. But cancer has no off switch. It's one of the hallmarks of cancer that it doesn't have any ability to downregulate itself in response to fuel supply. Mm. So if you cut off the fuel supply, it just gets really stressed. Mm. It doesn't have the sugar it needs because your blood sugar is low when you eat low carb or keto or fast. Um, and it doesn't have the insulin circulating, which is a growth factor for it because your blood sugar is low. Mm -hmm. So cancer cells are stressed. And then while they're stressed, the idea is that then you hit them with something that um, that becomes more effective or more mm -hmm. potent because of them being stressed. So that's the chemo or the radiation or high dose vitamin C intravenously or hyperbaric oxygen. There's a variety of things that can be used um, to be the punch. Mm -hmm. so, yeah i think that's it's kind of counterintuitive as you say to fast when going through that process and i, and I certainly remember the the sort of high fat calorie dense foods that they were trying to uh, encourage my son to eat when he was going through all this uh so it, it is a little bit counterintuitive but i know that this is something that you worked to develop um 
uh, you know, a, a clear window of fasting. And, um, and, and so it's, you know, it, it is, as you say, a fasting protocol that you've, you've, you've built uh, in, in contrast with, you know, the idea that we're trying to get calories in, you know, as much as we can. I know. And, you know, still you go to the chemo clinic and they walk around with butterscotch candies and um, starchy little cookies. And if you ask for a drink, it's ginger ale, like it's sugar upon sugar upon sugar upon sugar. And I realized that they are expecting everybody to feel nauseous and that's why they provide those things. Um, but it's, it's just sugar. It's all feeding the it's all feeding the, the cancer, right? Yeah. yeah. And actually, um, I think you you told me that your symptoms associated with the chemo were actually quite uh, mild. Oh, yes. Amazingly so. I mean, and that's not at all what's expected with the kind of chemo that I was getting. Mm. I was on paclitaxel and carboplatin, which are two, you know, fairly significant chemo drugs. One... Um, they were both administered at the same time, once every three weeks. And I had six rounds. Um, and I had said to my doctor, like, you know, hit me with your best shot. I only plan to do this once. <laughs> I don't want to have to come back. <laughs> so, you know, it, it was the normal, like the full on dose. Um, and so for each of the actual chemo treatments, I fasted for 36 hours prior to the, the treatment and then 24 hours after the treatment what that did was that down regulated my healthy cells into a quiet mode and um kept them there for the period of time so so they went into quiet mode prior to the chemo and then during the chemo and for the 24 hours after they stayed in that quiet mode mm -hmm. and that stressed the cancer cells um but what it does is Chemo is this, let's say it's a, it's a poisonous drug. The idea is to kill the cancer before you kill the person, right? Mm -hmm. um, so by downregulating my healthy cells, the chemo literally couldn't find it because chemo is a bit of a blunt weapon in a lot of cases. It is targeted at the, the symbol or the signals of fast metabolism because cancer can't turn off. So it's always got this fast metabolism, these, these growth factors and stuff that you know, so the chemo goes into your system and it heads for those cells that are exhibiting the fast metabolism. So if you can quiet your own cells, I call it stealth mode, right? Where you literally put your own cells into stealth mode. The, the chemo literally doesn't find them. And so you don't get the side effects in the parts of your body that are more rap normally more rapidly metabolizing. Yeah, so it's... if you think about an adult, we don't have a lot of active growth going on. Right, because we're, we're grown. We're not like your, your son or, you know, pediatric or, or even adolescent cases. Mm -hmm. But as adults, we don't have a lot of growth happening. So the parts of our body that get hit with chemotherapy are the ones that are still actively in a growth phase. So, I mean, the one that everyone knows the most is hair, right? Mm -hmm. Your hair follicles are always growing. Your skin is always um, producing new skin cells. The lining of your GI tract all the way from your mouth to your back end is always regenerating fresh cells. And your bone marrow is always putting out new blood components, red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets. Um, your, you know, a lot of your immune system cells are, are created in your bone marrow. So those are the parts of your body um, that really get hit up hard with chemo. And by putting those things into stealth mode, what I found personally, and this was borne out by some of the case studies and the work that Dr. Walter Longo did, is that I had very few side effects from my chemo and that each chemo treatment got less severe in terms of side effects than the one before. And that is totally opposite to what they expect. Because what they, yeah, they expect each one to be cumulatively worse than the one before. I had minimal nausea. I never threw up. I never missed a meal unless I was fasting. Um, I, I never missed making a meal. I mean, I'm the cook in my house and I like it that way. 
Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm in control. It's my kitchen. <laughs> um, sometimes it was just bacon and eggs, but you know, I would get out of the chair and I, and I was never horizontal. I was never spending days in bed, nothing like that. Mm -hmm. I had a, I had a um, recliner, like a electric power recliner that I could be in the middle of the living room. I was knitting, I was watching movies, whatever. Um, I'd get up and I'd maybe walk out to the end of the mailbox and, you know, at the end of the driveway, get the mail. I'd walk, you know, I'd empty the dishwashers, you know, make a meal, whatever. And then when I was tired, I'd climb back into my chair. And I would do that for maybe four days after each treatment. And then I could feel my energy coming back up. And then for about two weeks, I'd have pretty much awesomely normal. Wow. And, um, yeah, I was still at one of my jobs. So I was working a couple of days a week and, uh, nice. yeah, it was, it, it was amazing that I felt as good as I did, um, in the middle of chemo, like it was really amazing. Mm -hmm. And that's what I so desperately want everyone else to, to have is to be able to, um, number one, feel empowered. Like you still have some control over this, this horrible situation yeah. um but also that you um that you don't have to go through being flat out you don't have to go through the misery you don't have to go through um the the vomiting and the you know the mouth sores and peripheral neuropathy was the one that i was totally terrified of which mm. is um nerve damage to your extremities your fingers and toes mm. I, mean, I see people coming into the chemo clinic with a walker because their feet just weren't really working right Wow. Um, and people would get numbness and stuff. And I thought, like, I type for a living, you know, in my work. I, I have to, everything's electronic record. So you're typing mm -hmm. all the time. And I knit for relaxation. Like, that's my mental happy place. And it's like, I can't, I can't lose those things. Right. So mm -hmm. nothing. I, I had none of that stuff. The only issue I got into in any way really significantly was a bit of constipation after the first chemo treatment. And that was my own fault because I kept thinking, oh, well, I haven't gone. But, you know, ah, I trust my body. It's always been fine before. Yeah, no, it wasn't fine. <laughs> um, but then again, I problem solved that myself using um, uh, I developed a, a keto flax psyllium bread that I could use as a super sort of high fiber supplement to help that fit it within the strict keto diet that I was following for that mm -hmm. whole few months. Um, and that took care of things. Like as long as I stayed on that, a couple of slices of that bread every day, I was fine. I made it th through. So I never got into that mess again, but um, yeah, that was it pretty much for side effects. I suppose um, the thing that uh, maybe some people are not, overly familiar with is is what is the keto uh you know what can you eat what can't you eat what what does that look like well you know it's interesting a ketogenic diet is a diet that puts your body into ketosis it can be anything but it puts your body into a state of ketosis and what that means is that your blood sugar is dropped low enough that your body senses that it's low and it takes fatty acids from your fat stores when we all love the idea of using up our fat stores um, and it takes them to the, the fatty acids to the liver and then it turns it creates these small chemical molecules called ketones they're water soluble which fatty acids are not and they could be plugged right into the fuel system of our bodies the mitochondria and go through the same metabolic pathways as um, as the carbohydrates. And the important thing for ketones in particular is that they cross the blood-brain barrier and, and fuel your brain beautifully. Brains are happy, happy, happy working on ketones. In fact, this is why a ketogenic diet was developed in the 1920s as a treatment for epilepsy. Oh, wow. Okay, so before the days of epileptic drugs, intractable epilepsy could be treated with a ketogenic diet, which is an extremely low carbohydrate diet that would um, cause the body to fuel itself almost entirely on ketones. And the, and literally it would heal brains. Like it, it, it still does it. In fact, it was kind of, 
again, dustbin of history because the medications were developed for um, epilepsy, but there's lots of epilepsy that isn't um, amenable to even the best of the the drugs and the drugs have terrible side effects. So using a keto diet was actually rediscovered in, I think it was the eighties, late seventies, early eighties by um, Jim Abramson, who's a famous Hollywood um, producer or director. I'm not sure. Anyways, he had a son with intractable epilepsy Mm -hmm. and they discovered this diet approach and they started a whole foundation called the Charlie foundation, which has been instrumental in advocating for and getting reestablished the whole dietary epilepsy um, connection. So yeah, so your brain's really happy on, on ketones. Um, But diet wise, anything that that creates that situation where your body's going to make ketones is a keto diet. Hmm. But the traditional keto diet, the way it's, it is in the popular press is, um, is mostly animal-based foods. So meats and, and um, mostly fermented or um, low carbohydrate dairy products. So not fresh milk, for example, but things like heavy cream or cheeses, um, where the the milk sugar has been removed or has been already fermented out. Um, but meat, fish, um, poultry, eggs, and then lots of vegetables, low carbohydrate vegetables, um, and um, a few low carbohydrate fruits or lower carbohydrate fruits. So a moderate amount of usually berries is the most common one. Yeah, blueberries, strawberries, raspberries, that kind of thing. Um and uh, so what's not in a keto diet will be any sort of sugar um, and most of the grains. So um, wheat and wheat products, which is, you know, your bread, cereals, crackers, cookies, all that kind of stuff. Biscuits, I guess you would call them. Um, cookies in Canada, biscuits. Yeah, biscuits yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, and uh, and um, rice, potatoes. Um, so a lot of the, the super starchy things, oats, um, you know, barley, all that kind of stuff. I know. Um, so that, those are just too high in carbohydrates to fit within the guidelines of a keto diet. Um, there are variations on that sort of basic idea, but the other thing that's, that has become obvious, it's really, really important. Um, just in the last few years is the, the fats that you use because, when you don't use carbohydrate for energy, your a keto diet is high in fat, but it has to be a healthy fat. It has to be a kind that nature has built, not a factory. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's um, animal products or plant fats that have just been pressed as is out of the fruit of a plant usually, which would be olive oil, coconut oil, avocado oil, um, not see um seed oils or uh soya oils or any of those industrially produced oils they are incredibly inflammatory for the body mm-hmm. yeah and and standard nutrition got that wrong for about 40 years i mean since the 1980s and even before we've been pushing polyunsaturated fats and these industrial seed oils and they are so unhealthy if everybody does nothing else out of this podcast throw out the margarine throw out the crisco get some real butter real lard life will be better. Yeah, because I know I know the ketogenic, ketogenic diet has been criticized from the perspective of um, the high fat and the potential for, uh, uh, was it heart disease they were worried about? So yeah. Yeah, yeah high cholesterol. But you so, know, the whole cholesterol fat theory has really been debunked. Um, um, it, it was a very politically motivated thing. Um, and like say it came out of the 1960s, 70s, 80s. Um, a few people were really instrumental to um, pushing it through and they're very charismatic people. And so the government ended up adopting it as a national policy. And then of course, all other, you know, the Canadian um, and Australian and UK and everybody else has decided that this had to be the, the right science, but it really wasn't, we were wrong. Yeah. Um, Cholesterol, they, they describe cholesterol uh, as being like the firemen at the scene of a fire. They didn't cause the fire. They're there to deal with the fire. Cholesterol didn't cause the heart disease or the plaques or the problems. It's basically the Band-Aid. <laughs> it's there, you know, at the scene of the crime because it's there to help, not because it is the cause, right? Inflammation 
is yeah. the cause. Yeah. And, and cholesterol gets kind of racked into, um, you know, being present at the scene of the crime sort of thing. Mm. And I mean, I know that uh, fasting can be uh, anti-inflammatory too in, in its nature. So you combined your ketogenic diet when you were eating and then a fasting protocol. Did, did you mention something about bone broth or am I, did I dream that? No, you didn't. No, <laughs> it wasn't a full water fast that oh. I did. Um, it was a supported, you know, fast. I call it a supported fast. Mm. I had, you know, non-caloric beverages basically um coffee and i happen to drink it black already so that was easy um tea herbal tea water um and i would use over the course of 72 hours i'd use about three cups of bone broth wow. so about 750 mils or so um mostly the day before because the day before chemo, you still feel really, really good, which means that you've got a good appetite and you're hungry. Mm. Right? Mm. So the bone broth, when you heat it up, and particularly it's a really good delivery method for salt, which your body needs when you're fasting. Wow. Um, and, uh, and so it feels like a meal. You could mm. warm it up and I could sit and have my cup of bone broth with my husband while he's having his meal sort of thing. Um, the day of chemo, you feel kind of, eh, you know, so it, I didn't find I even needed any bone broth the day of chemo. Mm. And then usually the day after you're still appetite's not great. But by the, th the third day, I'm going to eat supper that night. So I, I just need to make it through the day. But usually, yeah, between two and three cups of bone broth, and I would make my own, it's easy to make. Um, and it's you can you can buy it if you don't have the time or energy to make it. But um, get a good quality one if you can not just, you know, the, the um, soup based, powdered soup based stuff, like yeah. actually get some bones, throw them in a crock pot, you know, um, instant pots. Do you have the instant pot in the UK? You know, that, that electric pressure cooker. Oh, uh, well, yeah. Pressure cooker. I don't yeah, know. But, but nowadays they're all electronic and they're like idiot proof. Oh, and <laughs> Yeah. And oh yeah. They're not going to explode in your yes, face. Yeah. Those ones. Yeah. I guess it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I bought one of those because I can make bone broth in about two hours and it doesn't oh, stick yeah. up my house. Yeah. 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 My husband had a, um, aversion to waking up at eight in the, you know, seven in the morning and the whole house smells like bone broth because it's been cooking on the stove all night, um, or in the crock pot. And ugh, he didn't like that. So I got one of these instant pots and, and they're amazing. I can make bone broth in a couple hours and yeah, they, they make a good, uh, they make a good bone broth. So, oh, well, you know, and I know you've got amazing tips and so you put all these into a book. I did. Yes. I know. And, and you know, this, I love this, that you, you know, you took something that was a, a tragic negative personal experience and you've turned it into a, a positive outcome, which is you gave birth to this book and, and you know what, the, the beginning part that I read, the story, you know, of you and, and your mom actually as well, and, and yeah. your journey through, through this, uh, this terrible diagnosis was very engaging. I, I, you know, like a novel, I, I could have sat there and, and been failed to put it down if I wasn't there. <laughs> it was so well written. So thank you for doing this. It, it, and it's, I know it's got recipes and uh, lots of wonderful information. Did it take a lot of work to put it together? Or? Well, I started with a blog because I had been looking for other people's stories when I started. And like I say, when I found this whole area, I just thought like the world needs to know this. So I started a blog and then some of my friends kind of said, you know, you write really well. You should maybe think about a book. And so I started, um, I just put an outline together and then I just started putting the chunks together. So the book is called Hacking Chemo um, because it's not about curing cancer. It's about surviving chemo in a really empowered, badass sort of way, right? <laughs> and um, so it, it's hacking chemo using ketogenic diet, therapeutic fasting and a kick-ass attitude to power through cancer. Yeah. yeah. And so it kind of addresses all those areas. It's the first part is my story. There's also a good ketogenic diet kind of primer, how to do it mm. um, and how to get into it. Cause you, you don't go from like zero to a hundred kilometers an hour, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You have to kind of work your way into it. Um, the, the theories and the reasons why 
the, the chemo is impacted and cancer is impacted by metabolism and fasting mm -hmm. and stuff. Then the chemo fasting protocol itself and a variety of recipes that I found helpful, particularly because during chemo, um, well, a lot of times, but when you're not feeling well, you often want comfort food. So there's comfort food versions of a lot of things that fit within a keto diet. You know, there's breads and uh, a granola recipe and cracker recipe and um, a mac and cheese type thing that uses cauliflower instead of noodles and that kind of stuff. So that it feels like comfort food. You're not stuck eating like a piece of meat when you don't feel like eating like a piece of meat. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You may not feel like chewing on a steak at that moment. And it's all evidence based and referenced. So, um, you know, it's it's not it's not weird and out there. And I'm not ever saying that this is, like, say, a cure for cancer or that it is um, that it's going to be you know the be all and end all or the forever. There's also a section in there on, you know, living the rest of your life after chemo, because I don't live a keto diet life like that's not that's not where I live on an ongoing basis I live a mostly clean um animal based whole food sort of based low carb healthy fats diet and I feel like I'm three years out from diagnosis and I mm -hmm. feel fabulous I'm on absolutely nothing there's been no ongoing medication support or anything at this point um I do blood work every three months to make sure that my um, my CA-125, which is the cancer marker, that it's down and it has not budged in three years. Oh, so and it's low, very low, and that's perfect. That's um, so once they say once you get to five years, that basically your chance of recurrence is pretty much passed and oh, you have about the same chance of getting cancer as anybody else in the general population so um yeah so i'm at three years it's all good well keep me posted because i i want to know um <laughs> but you know that this the food is fuel thinking of cells thinking at that cellular level uh you know we are here on the moving through menopause podcast and what you just said then about things that influence our food decisions that you know and for me menopause has just been enough for me to have to have a bit of a review about, you know, what, what's going on with, with my body. Because honestly, some things that I used to eat without any trouble at all, all of a sudden decide that uh, my insides are rebelling and uh, it's all going horribly wrong. <laughs> so, so, you know, like you, I've kind of gravitated towards the, um, the lower carbohydrate approach and, uh, uh, I mean, I actually found dairy is really bothersome. So that that's a bit of a bit of a blow. You know, you talk about eating heavy cream and I could just about start to drool at the thought of it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and you know, I don't personally have much of a sweet tooth. I, I never have. I have more I've always had more of a creamy tooth. Mm. Um a bit of a salt tooth, but mostly a creamy tooth. And you know, like I say, I've never met a cheese I didn't like ever. Uh <laughs> And cheese and crackers are my comfort food. I mean, I've eaten them all my life and, and still do. Um, but I have low carb alternatives to crackers mm. and, uh, and they're what makes me happy. You know, I've, I've tried going dairy free. I've done like the whole 30 diet restriction type things and stuff, but the, the dairy aspect of it, I found did not make any difference to me personally it didn't change my weight or my digestion or anything all it did was make me unhappy <laughs> <laughs> because I wasn't getting my cheese and I wasn't getting you know milk in my coffee and mm. I don't care what anyone says but nut juice is not milk <laughs> and it just doesn't meet the it's same no, physiological it or emotional needs at least it doesn't for me <laughs> no, well, no, I can testify to that. But unfortunately, the, my digestive system definitely, uh, if I if I did have it inadvertently or just think, it, you know, maybe on this occasion, it'll be okay. And invariably, it's not. No, so. We're so, all so unique. That's, that's what makes us so interesting. But it's also what makes it complicated is that you need to know, and you need to be in touch with your body, because a lot of us are not. And that's where the whole ovarian diagnosis thing comes in is, um, they call they call ovarian cancer the cancer that whispers 
because the symptoms, you know, your ovaries are buried so deep inside you that the symptoms are really nondescript. They tend to be things like bloating, possibly constipation, early satiety, or in other words, all of a sudden you can't eat as much as you used to. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just, just things that we as women just kind of go, oh, well, you know, <laughs> it's just us. It's menopause or it's my period or it's whatever, you know, it's stress. And then we don't pay attention to ourselves and our and those little niggling things. So I'm here to tell you, pay attention to the little niggling things. Like, yeah, you, yeah. you need to be you need to be in tune with your own body, just like you are with the dairy, and know what works, know what doesn't, um, and and listen to it. And if you have concerns, investigate it because, mm -hmm. like I say, 75% of the people that are diagnosed with ovarian cancer are diagnosed at stage three or four when there's metastasis and it's really difficult to treat. So it's considered a, a pretty serious or, you know, fairly deadly cancer because of that. It's not obvious. Your, your ovaries aren't like your boobs. You're not sticking out the front, you know, where it's easy to find a lump or something. Mm. Right. So, yeah. so that is an important message for us to, yeah. To finish on, really, that if in doubt, get it checked out, um, mm -hmm. and and don't put up and shut up. Uh, no, your body's your body's changing, but uh, but you know, there's no harm in in going to the doctor and just getting the thumbs up. You know, there's there's no harm yeah. in that at yeah. all. Doctors so, have trained fingers that can feel for things, and an ultrasound is a really non-invasive process. I mean, even an intravaginal ultrasound is really not that invasive a process. It's not that big a deal. Nobody's yeah. poking you with much of anything, you know, well, yeah, you yeah. poked, but yeah, not, nothing below the skin. Um, and and it's worth it for the peace of mind. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your, your story, your journey and your book uh, with, with us today. It's been lovely to chat with you and meet you. Thank you so much for you your time. You too. And, and thank you. Hello to the UK and all your listeners over there. It's really wonderful to um, make new friends internationally. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I love that about this. Uh, you know, if there's anything good come out of this pandemic, this is it. You know, the yeah. fact that we can be together virtually Oh, anywhere in the planet pretty much so um so yeah. thank you and, and the book is available on um the uk amazon too so yes um, yeah, yeah. It's, that's right and it's i will be sharing that yeah definitely on yeah. my page and you know what? i'm definitely going to be reading the end of your book because i know i've read the beginning part and i'm going <laughs> to be reading the end of it so uh, so thank you again so much take care have a wonderful rest of your day Thank you, and same to you. Thank you. Take All care. Right. Bye. Bye. Bye.